Hey everybody, this is Jim from faithtestedbyfire.com, and you are listening to the Faith Tested by Fire podcast. Hey everybody, this is Jim. Welcome to the Faith Tested by Fire podcast. I don't know if you'll hear it or not. Maybe during the parts of this podcast where I'm not talking, where it's silent for a a split second, (laughs) Um, there's birds singing in the background. He's outside in the tree. And uh, he's been looking for companionship. It's mating season, and uh, I'm here in uh, southwest Florida. It's nice and warm outside. And uh, he's just looking for a companion. It's that time of the year for him. I hope he finds one because he's been singing nonstop all day long. He starts up again at sometimes 4 or even 5 in the morning. And... um, I'm imagining that when another bird comes, when he, if he does find a companion, he'll stop. So he hasn't stopped yet, but we'll see what happens. Um, anyway, I want to talk to you some about a um, a really important topic. I know there's not one topic in the Bible that's not important. If it wasn't important, God wouldn't have put it in there. And you know, I've been reading the Bible for many years now. And it's amazing how you can get additional insights and revelations about something that maybe you thought you already knew uh, all about that. And then you read it again in the Bible, and there's like a fresh eye-opening with it. And so I've had that over the last um, month with the topic of God's grace. And maybe you've heard... Um, Uh, sermons preached before or you've read about the the grace of God, but it ties into absolutely every book of the New Testament. It's kind of hidden a little bit in the Old Testament, but um, the New Testament, the grace of God, we're talking about God's unearned favor. Um, It's the the word grace connotates that you have been highly favored, not just favored, but highly favored and highly blessed. And all of that favor and blessing is a result of God's love. So when you combine the topic of grace and love together, you get the entire foundation for um, what Jesus Christ did in his life, who God the Father is, and what's motivating God. And, And now here's the thing. With all of the topics of the Bible, when you study one and it begins to come alive for you, when you begin to see it in a deeper way than you've seen it in the past, it's almost like it becomes very easy to forget about all of those other topics in favor of the latest one. And if you've been a believer for a while, you know how you can run that course and you know what it's like. Something seems really encouraging to you and really uplifting to you, and you follow along that with that until it kind of runs out of gas. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, no matter what topic you look at in the Bible, um, when you see the, the life that's in it, when you see the possibilities, uh, hope begins to blossom on the inside of you. And you begin to think about where you are in your life and where you are in the, in the, in the things that you struggle with. And you begin to get hope. And hope is a good thing. The Bible talks about hope much differently than we talk about it here in in our language. In our language, in the uh, here today in 2018, 
in the in the West, at least the English word hope, it doesn't have that uh, power that it did in the New Testament. In other words, we look at something like hope, like the toss of a coin. Oh, I, I, I hope this works out, meaning that there's an equally good chance that it won't, but maybe it will. It hasn't failed yet. <clears throat> or, you know, I hope things get better. And when we say things like that in the English language, in the, in the modern mindset, we think of, well, it probably won't, but there is a chance that it will. But in other words, it's not a real expectation. Whereas Bible hope is completely different. Bible is an earnest expectation, an earnest expectation of a positive end result. So when we look at Jesus as the Bible says is the hope of glory, we're looking at it that, you know what, there's no, there's no failure in, in the outcome. Like he- heaven isn't going to go bankrupt and, and close up shop before we get there, you know. And it's not like we're going to get before the gate and you see the gate's kind of like hanging by a hinge when we leave this lifetime. And there'll be like an angel there saying, well, you know, we had a good run, but things really didn't work out, unfortunately. You know, we've been doing this for 10,000 years, but, you know, unfortunately, you know, it's not going to be anything like that. This hope is the thing that drives us, the thing that keeps us going. A hope that drives you, a hope that is earnest, the earnest expectation. That's a lot different than natural hope like we see it today in our language. Like, well, maybe it'll work out. Hopefully it does. <clears throat> or hopefully something bad doesn't happen. You know, that that's not the kind of hope at all. So, you know, we look at these topics and we, and we can get excited about it because you, you're not going to hear this kind of talk on the evening news. You're not going to read about it in the average blog post. You're not going to hear people discussing it on the radio. All you're going to hear is um, how bad things are and how corrupt things are. And can you believe that this person said or did this? And we really need to stand up against. And, and you know, when you take that kind of mindset, it really doesn't fit into the, the believer's mindset in the New Testament. I'm using the word mindset. That's really a relatively new uh, term. So we can put it this way. Uh, the heartfelt beliefs. Let's talk about heartfelt beliefs. Heartfelt beliefs mean that the heart supersedes the head. Right? The, the heart comes first. So, so deep in your heart, you know that God is. Deep in your heart, you know that Jesus is, that, that he's the Son of God. That's, that's what you believe. If you're a believer, those are things that you, you hold on the inside of you. But when you start to um, look at this topic of grace, um, it's, it's beyond the fact that it's just a topic. The grace of God and the love of God are so interconnected, and they drive everything that we see happening throughout the Bible. Again, it's hidden a bit in the Old Testament, but it's right out in the open in the New Testament. And I, you think about things like, what, what does it mean when the Bible says that faith works by love? And the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. What does it mean when Paul said that um, he prays that we understand the, the height and the width and the length and the breadth and the depth of God's love that passes all understanding? What, what is all that? Why is all that done that way? Because the fact of the matter is, is that the more you look up the word grace, 
the more you look at its definition, the greater the realization happens from the inside out. The God loves you as an individual so much. And that, and now here's the thing. The Bible says God loved us while we were yet sinners. So that means whatever level you reject God at before you make that transition to believe, when, when you reject God, when you, if you mock God, curse God, all, all of those things, sin against God, sin against other people, God still loves you. And the thing is, the Bible says that can anything separate us from the love of God? You know, and, and, and Paul goes down a list of things. Let me just read this to you quickly. Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long, we who are counted as sheep to the slaughter. But in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And it goes on, and it says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I'm reading this to you because there's two mindsets at work in the church world today. And one is, is that God loves the sinners unconditionally, the people who don't, don't yet believe, that there's nothing that you could do that's so bad that God cannot forgive you. And we say that with confidence to people. When we look at that confidence, we looked at that ourselves once. There's nothing that we could do. Matter of fact, the Bible says that through the first Adam, sin entered into the world. By one man's offense, many were made sinners. And then it goes on to say that by the second Adam, Jesus, many by the obedience of one man, many were made righteous. So you were born the way you were born. You, you can't help it. You didn't decide, you didn't choose to have evil desires. You didn't choose to have things in you that are corrupt. You were born in the lineage of Adam, but you were reborn in the image of Christ when you believed. That's what the Bible says. That's where we get that term born again from or born from above. So think about this for a moment. Through no choice of your own, you found yourself in the position you were in in your life at one point when you realized you were separated from God. And then, through the obedience of somebody else, nothing you could do, no working, no sacrificing, nothing, you could receive forgiveness for everything that you did. Now think about this. The Bible says that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. This is kind of like, imagine that the 20 wealthiest families on earth get together and come together with with the common goal of eliminating your household debt. Now th- think about that for a moment. Would it really take the 20 wealthiest families on earth to believe? I'm using that number 20 because recently I heard, now this may be semi-accurate, but they said that 80% of the world's wealth is controlled by basically 20 families. I mean, the super wealth. 
there's of course very wealthy families. I think they said there's like 300 families that are are uh, in the top um, percentage, but within that 300, there's 20 that are really. That's what I heard. So well, you get the idea. In other words, are they going to struggle to even if you decide to buy a new home for a million dollars, a new car for half a million dollars? I mean, would would those when those invoices came in, when those bills were due, when those payments came up, if that you had the twenty most wealthiest families in the world dedicated to to keeping you out of debt, um, that would really be overkill, wouldn't it? You wouldn't need that. You would you wouldn't even need the wealthiest. Um, uh, you wouldn't even need one of the families. Probably you could you could go down on the list to like the ten uh, thousandth most wealthy family, right, to pay off your debts. I mean, really, when you think about it. And, and it's the same way with sin. Jesus really it was an overpayment. You know, not only did he pay off your sins that you've committed and that you ever will commit, but people who haven't even been born yet, um, and all of those who already came, and all those, I mean, the payment covers all of them too, plus all of the sins that, uh, in one act. So there is an overpayment. For your sins. So, if you, if we think about where we are today in our in our life experience, and the problem is, is because as a believer, you think that now everything has changed. It's not like I'm on the outside looking in. Now I'm I'm part of God's family. So if I sin, then it's pretty bad. It's not like when I was in the darkness and sinned and didn't know any better. Now I know better. So when you when you think like that, you judge yourself a little. Uh, Harsh, more harshly. And when you judge yourself harshly, what happens? Then the series of dominoes begin to fall. Now keep in mind, I'm talking about the grace, the unearned favor of God. Right? And realize we have a spiritual enemy. Devil, demons, fallen spirits, all of these things, the principalities, the powers, the things we wrestle against. And a good example of this, if you want to read about it, is the Church of Galatia in the book of Galatians. They went through this. What happened was, after they came, after they first believed, all the joy and all the happiness and all of the freedom came. Then afterward, when they began to sin again, when they fell back into maybe drinking, or maybe when they fell into other types of, of sins. Oh, I mean, I'm not even going to mention them. You know, all of the sins that are common to man. Right? When, once that happens, the Bible talks about Elijah like that. He was a man subject to like passions as are the rest of us. As long as you're in a body, then you're subject to the same things that everybody else is. Now, we look at that and we think, wow, you know what? I, I should be able to resist this more effectively. I should be able to discipline myself better. And all of those things make sense. But I've noticed that the harder that people try, the more frustrated they get. Why? Because even if you discipline yourself for a season, it doesn't seem like it lasts forever, does it? Think about that. I think about people, let me just take eating as an um, example. You know, the Bible talks about gluttony and, and you ever try and exercise self-control and you exercise self-control and maybe you do it for six months Maybe you do it for longer. You know, I've, you know, people that have lost hundreds of pounds and then they just gain it back again. You know, it just doesn't last. Willpower doesn't last for long. Discipline isn't foolproof. And then when you miss it, you feel even worse. 
than you did before, right? When you miss it again, and it all comes flooding back into your memories of all of the times that you've missed it. And you get to the point where, let me, let me um, just put this in the context. Imagine that you go to work and you're working for a boss and the boss doesn't recognize you, doesn't recognize your contributions, barely gives you the time of day. And so you really want the boss to be happy with you. And so you try harder and you try harder and you try harder and you still don't get that recognition that you're looking for. Eventually, you get to the point where you, you, you come to the conclusion, why bother trying? Isn't that true? And so you basically just give up and whatever happens, happens. Well, it happens in, in the Christian experience a lot because people come to the place where they say, well, you know, God is for, I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't walk this walk. You know, I, I can't live a righteous and holy life. Now, God has an antidote for all of this, and it's in plain sight, but oftentimes we can't see the forest for the trees. And I'm going to explain what that is in in just a moment, because this all comes back to this thread, this one foundation. It's called the grace of God. It's God's love, and it's God's unearned favor. Now, think about this for a minute. Remember the prodigal son? The prodigal son left... And the father divided up the inheritance, and he went out and he blew everything. Wound up sleeping with pigs. One day he said to himself, <coughs> "Excuse me, I'll just make myself like one of my father's hired hands. I'll go back and and say, just you know, treat me like one of your servants." And you, you probably read the story before, heard it, that when the father sees the son coming over the horizon, he runs out to greet him and he cleans him up and he puts the the new robe on him and the signet ring on his finger. They kill the fatted calf and they have a celebration that that son who was lost is now found. But think of the other son. The other son was in a position like he was always trying to please the father. He was always trying to do the right thing, but he wasn't enjoying all of the benefits. Because he, he, was, he didn't know that he could kill a fatted calf anytime he wanted to. He didn't know that. It was waiting for the father to do that. And so you have two sons that are basically unhappy and basically don't understand the father. Now think about that. If you have children or or if you don't have children, imagine that you do. Imagine that your son or your daughter believes that they have to earn your love, that you won't love them unless they can somehow earn it. Now, I know there's things that maybe a, a child can earn sometimes where, where um, you know, you tell, you know, if you, if you do this, then we'll, we'll, we'll do this. I'll, I'll give you this extra reward. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about love in general. And, and you can see that, you know, you wouldn't want your child to be afraid of you. You would want your child to understand or you want your child to understand that you love them unconditionally, that they'll never not be your son and they'll never not be your daughter. And remember again, the Bible says that God loved us while we were, while we were yet sinners. Right? He chose us. We did, did not choose him. So now we responded, but we responded. Our eyes were open because God chose to open our eyes. Why did he cho- choose to open our eyes? Because he loves us. Now, sometimes people want to get really intellectual with things and say, well, are you talking about 
pre-election? Are you talking about, let me tell you something, you will never understand how all of these things work in a mechanical sense. Nothing will be black and white here on in this uh, lifetime as far as cause and effect as it relates to an individual, especially somebody else, and what's happening in their life. Now, the, the truth of the matter is, is that you, if you believe in Jesus, you're sitting there right now listening to me talk, that God loves you unconditionally and will not, doesn't love you less because you sin. You're not his son or daughter any less because you sin, because you do the wrong things, right? What does sin do? It actually, it brings fear to us because when we sin, we feel like we're separated. We're separating ourselves from God. We feel like we're moving away from God, but God is never moving away from us. Think about that. The Bible says that God will never leave us or forsake us. The Bible says we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when you sin, does that does that undo that scripture? When you when you sin, think about the prodigal son again. Did he never did he stop becoming the father's son? Of course he didn't. Right? <clears throat> this whole process has been initiated by God. That's what makes it all work. See, if it was in our hands, if it was in the law. The law is a, is a series of steps that we take, a series of things we do and how we do them. <clears throat> and we perform it at different levels. But the Bible says our own efforts, our own righteousness is as a filthy rag. That's why Jesus went to the cross and paid a debt that we could never pay. Now, if you look at this from a religious mindset, you're always going to put yourself in a place where Life is just a series of tests. I realize this is called the Faith Tested by Fire podcast because we go through tests in life, right? Our faith, our faith is tested. But here's the thing. God, does God really need to test us? Doesn't he already know what we're made of? Doesn't he already know how we re will respond? Isn't it the devil that comes and tests our belief in God, our belief in God's promises, our stand in faith? Isn't he the tester, the tempter? Now, again, this is a hard subject sometimes for people to just digest suddenly and accept it. But I want you to know something. Wherever your focus is, and this is the heart of what I'm going to get at. This is the heart of it, so listen really, really closely. Whatever we put our focus on, that's what we become enveloped or immersed in. Whatever we put our focus on, that's what we become enveloped or immersed in. So let's look at it at the, from the Old Testament and see this. Do you remember the Israelites when they sinned one of the many times and all these serpents came in the wilderness and bit them? And then the Lord said, I'm going to read, I just happen to have the New American Standard up right now, but I'm going to read from it. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, or on the stick, on the pole. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now we can look at this at some other 
translations. Um, one another translation says anybody who looked intently upon it lived. Let's scroll down a little bit here. Here's a contemporary English version which says Moses obeyed the Lord and all those who looked at the bronze snake lived even though they had been bitten by poisonous snakes. And so here again, what, what is the focus? When does the healing happen? When you stare, when you look upon, when you fasten your gaze on the snake on the cross. Now, now today, today, how does, how does, what should we be focusing on? What pole should we be looking at? Again, Jesus died for every single one of our sins. And it's the love of God for us that brought him there to make that payment. God loves you unconditionally. The Bible says nothing will separate you from his love. And his grace is upon your life. It says, by grace, you have been saved, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That not of yourselves. In other words, you are, high, you are blessed and highly favored. You are loved, you are blessed, and you are highly favored, and nothing can change that. Not principalities, not powers, not things to come, none of those things. And not even you, yourself. You cannot sin enough to separate yourself from the love of God. The payment that Jesus made, his blood, not only covers your sins, my sins, all the people living in, that, in this town, all of the people that will be living in this town, if the Lord tarries in the years to come, the, the payment is so big, it, it can cover the entire world, right? Anybody who ever, will ever, ever live. Right? And so that's what we receive. So the payment is there. It's not a matter of not having enough to do it. So on the same thing, do you think that you could possibly sin enough to undo that? Can you possibly sin enough to undo the blood of Jesus? Can you possibly sin enough to separate yourself from the love of God? You are. The truth is the, the grace of God, the unearned love and favor of God has forever set you free from the power of sin. The Bible says sin shall not have any more dominion over you. And if you say, I understand that theologically, but I don't understand how it works in everyday life, look at the snake on the pole. Look at Jesus on the cross. When you look at Jesus, why do you think when Paul said, I preached Christ and him crucified, why was the Bible called good news? Right, Because Jesus wasn't judging people by every little sin they did. Think about it. The woman that came to him at the well, was she condemned? No. The woman caught in the middle of adultery, was she condemned? No. The unclean woman who touched the hem of his garment, the woman with the issue of blood, was she condemned? Remember, she was unclean. See, the difference between the old and the new is, in the New Testament, when the clean thing touched the unclean, the clean became unclean. But in the New Testament, when the unclean touches the clean, which is Jesus, the unclean is made clean. Think about that. However unclean you are right now, maybe it's because you have these habits or hang-ups or addictions, whatever they are and to whatever degree you have them. When the unclean, you, touches the clean, Jesus, your uncleanness becomes clean. Think about that. Why do you think that woman who just had a, a miserable 
made miserable life choices, cried and broke that fine ointment, spread it on Jesus' feet and washed his feet and dried it with her hair. Why do you think she did that? Right? Do you think she ever would have approached the Pharisee or the religious people of the day that way? No. Why was Jesus thronged with the sinners and the tax collectors and the, and the harlots and all those, all those people? Why did they throng him? Because he made them feel bad about this? No, because he was the forgiveness of God. He was the grace of God in, the, in bodily form. He was the love and acceptance of God. See, when you see that, you know, that's why the Bible says that faith works by love. When you begin to understand how much God loves you and how unconditional that love is, your faith will naturally begin to grow. You know, I've talked a lot about speaking the word and using the name of Jesus, but a lot of times the truth of the matter is we do that with a works-based mentality. What I mean by that is it's like cause and effect. We do this and this happens. But you know what? If it doesn't happen right away, what happens as a result of that? We start to look at ourselves. We start to wonder, maybe something I've done is keeping the power of God from working. Maybe because, think about it for a moment. You get in an argument with somebody and somebody else asks you to pray. And what's the first thing you might think? I can't pray effectively right now. I'm mad. Or I've sinned, or God's not going to hear me because, and we have all of these excuses. But yet, here's the thing. If, if you will begin to open your heart to God's unconditional love, if you will begin to, and, and don't just do it because I'm telling you to do it, go and look at what the grace of God, how it is from book to book in the Bible, even if you just have to skim with your finger looking for the word grace. When you see the word grace, you know, that's talking about God's unfathomable love, his unfathomable favor, and his abundance of blessing. That's what that word means. It's been given to you. It's not going to be given. It's already yours. Your sins have already been separated you as far as the east is from the west. And it's true that when you sin, you don't feel good about it, right? You feel guilty. You feel ashamed. You feel discouraged. You feel all those things. But instead of getting down at yourself, do exactly what the Bible says to do and put your focus back on Jesus. You know, sometimes we try and intellectualize things a little bit too much. What did Jesus say? Jesus said he was going away and in the, in the Gospels. And remember what they said? They said, Lord, where are you going? Um, he said, you, you know where I'm going. Lord, and, and later you'll follow. Actually, let me let me quickly get there and read this to you. <clears throat> Excuse me. John chapter 16, verse 16, it says, In a little while you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. Therefore they said, What is this that he says, A little while? We do not know what he's saying. And Jesus knew that they desired to ask him and said to them, Do you seek answers with one another concerning this? Because I said a little while and you will not see me. And then again, a little while and you shall see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And then he goes on, talks about 
uh, child uh, birth. Uh, let me look on a little bit further. I actually think I'm in the wrong section here. Yeah, I jumped in here a little bit early. Okay, let me go. Let's go a little bit further. Actually, yes, I jumped quite. Jumped a few chapters ahead of myself. I'm sorry. John chapter 14, verse number one. It says, "Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place." Uh, for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. And where I go, you know, and you know the way. Now here it is right here. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you go, so how can we know the way? Now here, think about this. How was Thomas actually thinking? What was his focus on when Jesus said, I'm going away? Same place our focus would have been on. If Jesus said he's going away, I would want to know how far actually is it? And how actually do we get there? Is there like a door or something like that that we go through? Is it instantaneous? When we get there, who do we have? <laughs> do we just ask for you? Or give me inside a gate or outside a gate? I mean, that's all of the things that I would want to know because if I'm trying to get from one place to another, I look for addresses. I look for directions. I look for how to. Right? I look for the steps that I need to take. What's the first thing I need to do? And so what does he say here? He says, Jesus said to him, this is his reply, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus wiped all of that off the board and basically said, focus on me, believe in me. You know, a lot of times we try and believe things about Jesus. Um, we try to believe the facts or we try to believe the methods or we try to look at the approach. But beyond all of that is actually Jesus the person, the embodiment of the love of God. You know, back in the Old or back in the New Testament in the uh, Gospels, I guess technically it was the Old Testament then cuz Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet, right? And the, and the testament doesn't go into effect until somebody dies. So technically the Gospels are Old Testament. Now, that really shows you the grace of God at work or the love of God because no sacrifice had been made for any of these people, but yet Jesus dealt with them with love and mercy. So look at it like this. Um, when the people heard about Jesus, they weren't reading the Bible, right? They didn't know that Jesus was the one they were talking about there and how the cross and all those things would work. They didn't understand any of that yet. What did they hear? They heard about Jesus. They heard about his love. They heard about his compassion. They heard about the miraculous things that he did. And that's how their faith came. Do you see that? Faith works by love. Faith works in believing in love. If they didn't believe that this was a man of love and compassion, they would have never thronged him. They just would have said, well, you know, that's maybe for somebody else. And that's how we look at things sometimes. You know, like like we're, we're using a scratch-off ticket with praying. <clears throat> Think about your own relationships, human relationships, right, with imperfect love. Right? When somebody really loves you, would you ever question their willingness to help you? I mean, right is right and wrong is wrong, isn't it? Isn't it black and white? You know, but a lot of times people, they wonder if God is even willing to help them. You know, there's only one example in, in the New Testament 
of a man who said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Nobody else asked. Everybody else knew or had the revelation. They saw that he was no respecter of persons. And here's the thing. He always healed and delivered people first and then told them to go and sin no more. And you say, yeah, but that's just the problem. God's blessed me and I've still sinned and that's why I'm, I'm in the place that I am. Let me tell you something. You will always be in the place that you are until you learn how to get your eyes off of your own self and off of your own iniquities and onto Jesus. As long as you try and micromanage your life, as long as you try and discipline yourself to the point where you're going to be pleasing God's sight, you're going to be under the law. You're putting yourself under your own law and you can never live up to it. And so you'll always be defeated. And even if you're not defeated 100% of the time, you will be more often than not. And you'll never really see the power, the joy, and the provisions of God in your life like God wants to give you. No, you have to get your eyes off yourself. You have to be able to say, like Paul said, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Think about how many Christians died at his hand, died as a result of his order. Righteous people who maybe had fathers, mothers, sons, or daughters that were no longer alive on earth because of something that Paul did. Right? How did that man ever get to the place where he had assurance in his heart that God loved him? Right? It, well, let me tell you something. It wasn't by recounting all the deeds or looking at himself under the microscope. If you're going to look at anybody under the microscope, look at Jesus. He was absolutely righteous. He was absolutely sinless. And he credited his righteousness to your account. When you start getting your eyes off yourself and getting on to Jesus, getting on to Jesus' love, getting on to the Father's love, getting on to the Holy Spirit's love, and begin to focus on that, you will naturally start to do the things that are pleasing in God's sight. The habits, the addictions, and all the things will begin to fall off naturally, all because of who you're looking at. <coughs> Excuse me. That's the good news gospel. Is you don't have to look at yourself anymore. You can look at Jesus. And once you start doing it, everything changes. So I was looking at all the things that I was doing in my own life. I was looking at how much time I was burning trying to figure certain things out in life and in business. I was looking at all of the different topics that I had insights and knowledge in as far as the Bible goes and how it affects my life. And at the end of the day, I realized how much effort I was spending trying to do the right things, trying to live right and make good choices <clears throat> and it suddenly hit me from revelation of god by god's grace that i needed to remove the focus from myself and put it back strictly on jesus and so one day at a time when i get out of bed in the morning i think about the love of god i think about the favor of god i think about the blessings of god getting my mind off what's happening in the world around me getting my mind off the news, getting my mind off of business challenges, getting my mind off different struggles individuals are having in my family, and getting it on the goodness and the love and the compassion of God. And all those things which are found in Christ Jesus before I pray. Whereas over the past six months, I've spent quite a bit of time looking at all the problems, doing all the addition and subtraction, seeing what I had to work with, and praying from a position that is much weaker than it is stronger. A position where, you know, you're relying on yourself to maybe believe better. Or maybe to love better. Or maybe to forgive more. Or maybe to, to 
You know all of the things, again, once your focus goes on your own self, your own actions, and you start hyper-focusing on that, and you realize that, you know what, God will never love me any more or any less because of what I do. Let that sink in. God will not love me more or any less because of the things that I do. And if you want to do the things that are pleasing in his sight, you got to get your eyes off of yourself and onto Jesus and onto the love of God because that's the only thing that can transform you. It's not knowledge about God. I mean, if that were the truth, every theologian would have the miracle working power of God at work in their lives if it was knowledge about God. Every Bible teacher would go from glory to glory and success to success. But in fact, it's the people that look to the love of God, look to the mercy of God, look to the grace and the favor of God. Those are the people that are actually transformed from glory to glory because faith works by love. And until you open your heart up to receive God's love for yourself, nothing is going to change in a big way. And nothing's going to change for long. And then when you get to the other side, is it a wonder that God has to uh, dry away or clear away all the tears? Because people are going to realize that like, God, just, God loved them unconditionally the whole time. And, and all of that condemnation, all of that fear, and all of that uncertainty, and all the doubt and unbelief, at the heart of it all was the belief that God really didn't wasn't happy with them. That somehow by their actions, they had undone the work of the cross. Now, if you ask them that, they say, oh, I don't believe that my actions can undo the work of Jesus, but yet you're living that way, aren't you, sometimes? And so here's, in closing, here's the challenge I want to put out to you. Write down what the definition of grace is. Look it up for yourself. Look it up in a concordance. See that it has got unearned, unmerited, nothing you can add to it, favor. You have it in full, not in part. Look up for yourselves and see that no sins can separate you from the love of God, which is the grace of God. And begin to focus on that. What you focus is going to consume you and you're going to become consumed with. And if you're consumed with your actions and your works, you're always going to be a step behind, two steps behind, three steps behind. You're always going to have to fight condemnation. You're never going to be able to really believe like you know God wants you to believe. right? You're always going to be working. You're always going to be climbing. But you're never going to get to that place that you, you believe you're climbing to. And the reason is, is because God's already put you there. That's just the, the enemy putting an illusion before you, making you think that things are one way when they're not that way at all. All right, that's all I have for you today. Thanks for listening. This is Jim. God bless you. Enjoy the rest of your day, and I will talk to you again soon.